This is an ABC podcast. and good morning. I'm Aggie Dubo and this is Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. We'd like to acknowledge that our show comes to you from the lands of the Bunurong and Rwandan peoples of the Kulin Nation. Appreciate you tuning in because on today's show we'll have the latest updates on that shocking mass killing in Papua New Guinea. Seoul's women's football team unfortunately lose out on qualifying for the Paris Olympics and a new book claims Australia's renewed approach to the Pacific is needed to secure the region's interests. More on these stories shortly. I'm Aggie Tupou and this is Pacific Beat. First, we start in Papua New Guinea, where police say up to 26 people have been killed in an ambush in the Highlands region. PNG police say the incident occurred on Sunday and was part of an escalation in tribal violence in Inga province. Police Commissioner David Manning says the high death toll was caused by the prevalence of small arms. We have since responded. We've deployed a squad, mobile squad out of Mount Hagen. Um, to assist the acting PPC over there and, and ensuring that uh, you know, we have sufficient numbers on the ground to respond. Um, at this point, it's not, um, it's not clear as to exactly how far we've, we've moved into to the conflict area, um, but the intent is to, to regain control, uh, have a significant presence in that conflict area, and then, and then work through our, work through our uh, you know, our procedures in in dealing with this type of uh, incident. Photos of the attack began circulating on social media at the weekend before making its way into the national media. So joining us this morning for the latest on the story uh, is our ABC correspondent, PNG, Tim Swanson. Good morning, sir. Good morning, good morning. Yeah, look, uh, obviously we are dealing with another situation there. Uh, Tim, it's 48 hours uh, on after the attack. Uh, are the details a little bit more clear? Do we even know the reason for this attack? Yeah, look, well, one of the troubles as well has also been trying to clarify the death toll in this massacre. So late yesterday afternoon, police revised the figure down from just more than 50 to a death toll of 26. Um, but it appears that uh, late yesterday afternoon and the evening, they've uh, found more bodies in the dense scrubland uh, there near Birup in Enga province. Um, and they've said that the death toll now stands at about 49 or so. Um, so certainly just an absolutely shocking loss of life as far as uh, how many people were, uh, were shot dead on Sunday. As far as the actual cause, uh, we're still really waiting to hear more from police about this. Of course, we do know that it involves uh, some tribes that have been uh, warring basically for the last few years there in Enga province. Um, uh, you know, Sir Peter Ipitas, Enga governess, is about 17 tribes have effectively been fighting uh, in recent times. Now, what police have said about how the, the massacre occurred is that they say that uh, one tribe largely mercenaries working for them as well as their allies were effectively preparing to stage an attack on another um, and while they were on the move uh, they were they were ambushed um, so just such a tragic loss of life ultimately you know such a, a large group of people um, it's really caused a very significant outpouring of grief from the community in, in Papua New Guinea you know of course prompting many people including the Prime Minister to, to call on on uh, 
you know, many of these young men especially to lay down uh, their guns in these tribal fight areas. Um, and, uh, yeah, no doubt we'll, uh, I think, have a lot of people examining um, sort of both, you know, tribal fighting as well as also uh, police response and security and, uh, you know, for quite a long time to come. Yeah, very, very unfortunate to see uh, to see and hear what is happening there in PNG. Tim, can you correct me if I'm wrong? I know that there's often is not much of a police presence there in the Inga province. So I'm wondering what are the authorities doing in response to this horrific attack? Yeah, I mean, so just up the road uh, from this tribal fight area, sort of from Wapinamanda to um, Wabag, um, you know, they're, they're, sorry, rather in Wabag, just up the road from this area, there, there is a fairly, you know, substantive, um, you know, amount of police. There's a full-time police station, of course, there. It's the provincial capital of Enga. Um, and since there was a fairly large spate of deadly f- tribal fighting uh, last year in the middle of the year, since then there have been additional both police and defence resources that have been there effectively full-time. Um, so there has been relatively considerable resources. Of course, some have criticised um, they feel that there hasn't been enough um, and they also feel that there hasn't been enough sort of pro- Active approaches as well as part of um, policing there in Enger. Um, of course, one of the challenges, though, is perhaps maybe not necessarily the number of officers, but many of them feel that they're just essentially outgunned. Um, you know, it, the, the, you know, one officer when I was up there last in September. So- described it to me as they're facing against villages with a cache of bullets. Um, you know, even in this latest attack, um, they're saying that it involved some very high-powered weaponry as well. So uh, senior police are effectively saying, you know, look, we're not Superman. Um, we, uh, we're not going to go and stand in front of two warring tribes with high-powered guns is a message that I saw from senior police on WhatsApp. So uh, that, that in itself presents one of the challenges and no doubt something the government will have to tackle as far as not only sort of numbers of police resourcing and defence, but also the capability of those officers uh, when when that sort of tribal bloodshed um, gets out of control with the kind of high-powered firearms that are being used. Mm. And, um, of course, as you've explained, tribal fighting is very common there, uh, especially in the highlands. But does uh, it's interesting enough that this latest incident appears to have caught national attention. I mean, what's different this time? Yeah, I I would just honestly say simply the sheer number of people that have been killed in the one attack. I mean, you're right, you know, we, we know that tribal fighting has been occurring in the region for quite some time. I think national headlines were effectively grabbed last year when that death toll started to to creep into the dozens and dozens. And we were also seeing some of the really graphic imagery that was coming out as well. Um, you know, everyone seems to be filming awful stuff on their phones through and sending it around through WhatsApp. So that was certainly starting to grab attention. This time around, though, it was simply those images of, of, um, of bodies that were on the back of a police truck on Sunday afternoon that um, really started to uh, to grab people's attention as to the, you know, horrific situation that had just unfolded. Um, so, and, and, and look, ultimately, it, it should be a matter of national attention. Um, you know, law and order and security is, of course, something that many people focus on and talk about here in Papua New Guinea. Um, you know, part of that as well is, is, is a push to basically have more tactical squads that are able to kind of respond to this kind of violence. But also on top of that, 
that as well. Many people say that, look, we need to also tackle effectively the issue of, of businessmen, well-to-do people who are funding and effectively financing, um, you know, this kind of tribal fighting too. Um, so this latest attack has really re- renewed those calls to make sure that the adequate kind of crackdown on people who are funding the violence uh, is, is carried out. Yeah, with that, Tim, of course, uh, Australia has even offered assistance. Do you think PNG is likely to accept that offer? Not at this stage. Um, I asked Prime Minister Marape last night, and he said that no, he hasn't asked Australia for any, you know, specific direct support. Um, he's sort of more interested in the support Australia can provide as far as training. Um, you know, of course, the bilateral security agreement signed just in the last few months sort of provides for for that, and and we know that um, you know Prime. Minister Marape is interested in, like I said, sort of training up this tactical force and, and that would very likely involve Australian support. One of the key issues here, though, is that, you know, effectively 20 years ago it was found unconstitutional for Australian officers to actually be, be conducting effectively police work here in PNG. Um, so although, you know, many people say that, well, it doesn't really matter because they feel that it's the national interest to have, uh, you know, Australian boots on the ground um, up in Anger Province, that's certainly the view of Governor Sir Peter Ipitas. Um, but at this stage, I think it's pretty unlikely that um, Prime Minister Marape will actually request that Australian support, even though Prime Minister Anthony Albanese has said that it is very clearly on the table. Mm, Tim, look, we thank you for your time this morning uh, and thank you for covering this. Uh, as long as you're staying safe, uh, we just thank you for your time this morning. No worries, Aggie. Thank you. Appreciate it. That, of course, is PNG's ABC correspondent, Tim Swanston. And meanwhile, PNG Prime Minister James Marape appealed to those involved in the tribal conflict in Inga province to lay down their arms. Mr Marape says Police Commissioner David Manning has been dispatched to the Highlands to coordinate the security operation to fight domestic terrorism. Speaking to media, the Prime Minister vowed to restore law and order in the Highlands. There is no price to be engaged in, in uh, tribal fights. and uh, It is in the interest of every one of us, including our, our people, uh, if there are community disputes, there are ways to deal with community disputes. Uh, lay down your arms, allow the disputes to be resolved. Uh, one killing or two killing doesn't solve the problem. It contributes towards more problem. And our police has been, uh, commission has gone up. Uh, we've asked for uh, a stronger uh, police approach, especially in the face of uh, firepower. Uh, police uh, have... Uh, at the moment, are hesitant in terms of their own personal risk and safety. We're now looking in the cabinet paper that has been developed how best we could uh, ring fence our police in, in operational areas like this with, uh, with not just the physical firepower, but the legal protection for them to be engaged. This has been going on for some time, and uh, in areas where there are high prevalence of uh, firepowers, our policemen and defence personnel must be protected as they engage in areas of engagement. So the Commissioner has stepped in with uh, two of his senior most ranked officers uh, in, the, in the process, restoration of police, uh, provincial police command post will be made. Uh, we hope to bring someone from outside. And so that will be uh, strengthened and we will cross-use defence force to have police power uh, in those areas of operation to have powers of basically arrest. Uh, these are matters we looked at. Our legal team uh, working with uh, uh, police and, uh, and, and state solicitor.
to give clearance for police to have those and military to have those powers. So I want to uh, indicate to the country uh, some of these places require tough measures, and uh, especially when police are out there, they need to be protected. We will protect our policemen and in the event in areas of engagement. If they get tougher, then uh, the policemen and policewomen and defense are protected. So a great concern for what is happening in Anga province. To lose one life, let alone uh, many lives, is, uh, uh, does not evade our, our consciousness and our concern. As Prime Minister, I'm, I'm, I'm deeply, uh, deeply moved by this. I'm, I'm very, very uh, concerned. I'm very, very angry uh, in between these many words that you could you could express in as far as communities not responding to rule of law. And, uh, we, at the moment, I want to also indicate police has been looking into what has been happening in anger uh, in terms of uh, contact tracing, uh, finding out who's responsible. There's uh, uh, people outside. I want to relate to our youths who are holding guns up there. Uh, people outside who are sponsoring this uh, will not be there to answer to you when you either die or when you face uh, police and you respond to the rule of law. Our parliament under my words have already legislated that those who hold guns, those who hold guns will face life year imprisonment. It's just that we're not arresting those who are holding guns. And so we're structuring a, a police ar- uh, operation now. And police, when we asked them, in fact, I asked last night, why can't police work? And they said, we don't have the protection of law to work in the face of threat on our own lives. That is Prime Minister James Marape. But Mr Marape says he would not request Australian presence on the ground, instead saying Australia would help develop an elite squad to deal with lawlessness. All right, remember, you can head to our Facebook ABC Pacific page or our website abc.net.au forward slash Pacific to give your thoughts on any of our stories that we share with you today. We value your input. Pacific Beat. Well, we stay in PNG to continue our coverage on the recent massacre killings, where Papua New Guinean opposition member Alan Bird says he'd welcome Australian support to address the situation in Inga. He is the governor for East Sepik province and is involved in a bid to oust Prime Minister James Marape through a vote of no confidence. Governor Bird says if he were to take over the top job, he would establish a special police task force in the Highlands. Really, really sad for the people, first of all. And secondly, disgusted that we as a government are unable to respond. And it's not the first time this part of the country has experienced severe fighting and significant loss of life. That's becoming distressingly normal uh, in the Upper Highlands, unfortunately. When you say the government is unable to respond, what do you mean by that? Well, these aren't new occurrences. They've been going on for a while. Governor Wenger has been calling for help from police and specialised police uh, for at least the past 10 years. So that, that's what I mean by the government being unable to help. I mean, if it's a new thing, then we can act surprised and perhaps scramble around to figure out how to respond. But it's been happening for quite a while and it's prolonged and it's it's just now with you know, mobile phones and things like that, that the news is getting out. And any independent state should be able to assure its citizens, first of all, of their safety. And second of all, if in the event that they are attacked for whatever reason, 
the state ought to be able to respond well in that situation to one, protect them, and two, if it cannot protect them, to be able to prosecute all of those people involved in these in these fights, and of course the significant loss of life. We've been unable to respond to save lives, and as far as I know, we've been unable to prosecute the offenders and put them behind bars for some time now. Now, Australia's Prime Minister has today said that Australia is ready and willing to provide practical assistance or more practical assistance to Papua New Guinea to deal with the situation if needed. Is that something you'd support? Oh, definitely, definitely. But more than that, uh, rather than just uh, being reactionary, we need some kind of in-country force that's trained, ready, and has the capability to respond because these are acts of internal terrorism. And as I said, they aren't new. And whilst I appreciate the offer from uh, the Australian government, and obviously Australia is our closest friend and ally, we should be working on more long-term more ready response elements. And um, I know that the Australian government, for instance, has offered us significant support for upgrading our policing capabilities. I think that was recently signed. So you've already got that agreement in place, and I'm not particularly aware of what the details are. But having said that, you know, Governor Ipatas has called specifically for elements of perhaps Australian state or federal police to be assigned to his province to help with, you know, building police capability and authority. And I'm not even sure if that's a workable solution or even something that the Australians would be interested in doing. You know, but more than that, we need available resources, not just in country, but in that part of the world where, you know, interdiction activities can take place almost immediately. I mean, right now, I think all we're doing is retrieving bodies and trying to figure out the extent of the damage. And just on the question of Australian support, I guess specifically what type of um, assistance do you think Australia could or should provide in this acute phase in terms of like an international response to this situation in Enga? I think in that particular, in this particular instance, um, we'd have to listen to what the governor for Enga uh, is requesting because I'm sure, you know, knowing Governor Ipatas, he's pretty upset right now because um, he's been calling for this, as I said, for at least the past decade. So a response would be to defer to whatever Governor Ipatas uh, requires because he's the man on the ground. He's been, you know, governor there for, I think, close to 30 years. He knows the different tribes that are, are fighting and for what reason. And, you know, he'll know the terrain. And he'd probably be, in my opinion, the best person to inform us as to what sort of response would be appropriate in this situation. Is this something, do you think, the Prime Minister James Marape should be requesting this sort of help from Australia? Well, if I was to ask Governor Ipatas, he would say yes. Uh, you know, I can't really speak for him, but I know that we are desperate for help in this space. Speaking of uh, Prime Minister Marape, he is currently facing a vote of no confidence um, in the PNG Parliament. And uh, you are one of the contenders uh, looking to potentially take over that, that position and become Prime Minister if that vote of no confidence is um, goes through. 
if you were to become Prime Minister, would you deliver those things that you've been talking about in terms of the policing support, the specialist policing um, for Papua New Guinea and um, request the Australian government to be involved in that uh, specialist policing uh, security arrangements for Enga? Absolutely. Well, not just for Enga, but for the entire Upper Highlands. I mean, my concern has always been for not so much the fighters, but the those who end up uh, becoming collateral victims, uh, you know, the vulnerable people, the women and the girls and the old people. These are people who are also greatly affected by the fighting. But, you know, we only tend to sort of count the extent of the damage by the number of bodies that we we discover. So, you know, there's a whole lot of people there. And for me personally, I think any government where there are acts of internal terrorism, as we see in this case, should have the ability to respond and to respond appropriately. And in my mind, special policing units who are appropriately trained and appropriately equipped should have the capability to be able to respond immediately and to deter these sorts of threats immediately. Um, As it is, we don't have that capability right now. And that's Governor Alan Bird speaking there to ABC's reporter Marion Farr. Stay tuned because up next, it's News Wrap with producer Mackenzie Smith. Hi, I'm Sayuli Salamasinovonraiki, and I invite you to come with me to explore how our Pacific cultures have evolved with the changing times in a new show, Culture Compass. You'll meet people who are passionate about keeping traditions alive, passing them down to the next generation while adapting old ways to the present. Culture Compass, Tuesdays at 9am PNG time on ABC Radio Australia. Welcome back to Pacific Beat. I'm your host, Aggie Dubol, and we're going to head around the region uh, just to see whether it's the latest headlines. And, of course, that is brought to us by our producer, Mackenzie Smith, with our news rep. Uh, good morning. Morning, Aggie. Thank you for joining us this morning. Uh, we've been talking about this a situation that's been uh, happening in Inga Province in PNG. Looks like the Secretary-General of the Pacific Island Forum, Henry Buna, is also weighing in on this. What has he had to say? Yeah, Henry Puna has issued a statement saying the violence goes against everything the Pacific strives for, a vision of peace, harmony, security, social inclusion and prosperity. Puna says he's urging all parties involved in this conflict to seek a peaceful resolution. Uh, but he's also stressed the, the critical role of law enforcement and, and seeking justice for the people who were killed. Uh, He says that the forum stands ready to support the government and the people of Papua New Guinea in any way it can. Mm, Sounds good. That's good to hear. Okay, we head to a story about cover. Uh, Looks like the exports out of Fiji have been put on hold. What's that? Yeah, well, according to one exporter in Fiji, they've been told by the Civil Aviation Authority that following a recent drug bust, uh, the authority has put a hold on all exports of the crop out of Fiji. RNZ has spoken with the cover exporter who says he tried to send uh, the crop out of Nandi on Monday but was stopped by agents and it comes after more than 12 kilograms of cocaine was found packed with kava on Sunday and that's uh, just a month after three tonnes of methamphetamine 
uh, was found in Nandi, one of Fiji's largest ever drug busts. Four people are being questioned in relation to Sunday's discovery. Gosh, quite a few of those methamphetamine stories around the Pacific. It's not good. Uh, But Donga's Prime Minister, he's actually returned to the country. Where was he? Yeah, he was in New Zealand. So Matangi Tonga reports uh, that the Prime Minister, CLC Sovelani, is is back in Parliament after taking leave for more than three months. He was seeking medical treatment. Uh, But there were reportedly no comments in Parliament uh, about the Prime Minister's rift with King Tupo VI, who said earlier this month he had lost confidence in Sovelini as the Minister of His Majesty's Armed Forces, uh, as well as in Fikita Utoikamanu as Foreign Affairs Minister. Uh, There also hasn't been any further word from the King since that letter uh, he sent on February 2nd. Wow, yeah, well, we'll keep our eyes and ears on that one, as always. Uh, Mackenzie, thank you very much for bringing our news wrap this morning. We'll do the same thing, same time tomorrow. Sounds good. Awesome. That, of course, is our producer, Mackenzie Smith, with our news wrap. For centuries, Pacific Islanders have been sharing stories across the region. Stories from the Pacific is a weekly program that honours that tradition, allowing you to hear in-depth personal stories from sports people to farmers, artists to teachers, activists to entrepreneurs with one thing in common, their Pacific heritage and a unique and incredible story to tell. Stories from the Pacific, Wednesday mornings at 9 o'clock PNG time on ABC Radio Australia. Well, you're currently tuning in to Pacific Beat. I'm your host, Agitha Bol. We head to some sports. This one's a little bit of a heartbreaker for me. Despite losing 11-1 to to New Zealand, the coach of the Solomon Islands women's football team says his team are still winners. Former soccer international Batram Suri says the teams were unevenly matched and it was no surprise that the Oceania champions were able to convincingly win the finals and walk away with a spot at the Paris Olympics. But the coach had nothing but praise for his young team. I still feel happy with the girls. Uh, like as I said earlier in the best medal, uh, a professional against amateur. So the big difference is this. So uh, yeah, and uh, all the girls they are home based players. So nobody out in the overseas. So even though we lost uh, very bad, but I'm still proud of the girls. Reaching that final is a main main uh, thing for us. Amazing. Now, you know, what were some of the highlights from the game for your team? So happy with the girls, uh, especially uh, the the goalkeeper. She is, she was doing a brilliant job there. So and uh, yes, uh, we cannot maintain open game against uh, New Zealand because we, I know that if I do, well, they will the, the margin will be increased twenty more goals now. Now, what were some of the disadvantages for your team on today's game? Some of, yeah, when I look at the girls, uh, like the reaction and that the intensity to match up the game is not in there. But as I said, because the amateur players, they always like slow runnings. And uh, so, yeah, so big credit to the New Zealand team. They are, I mean, I, I was in the professional team, so I understand what the, the level be like. Yeah. What's your team going to do next after this? Uh, we have to see how things go and uh, look lo- look on the, uh, the teams uh, the next preparation. Because we usually wait for the competition and then we go for prepared. So, yes, uh, wait for another competition and see how things go.
Is there anything else you would like to add, Coach, especially for your the support of the teams and everything? Yeah, I would like to say thank you to all supporters. Uh, we cannot make it because uh, the teams, the different teams, so, and the most of the players, New Zealand players, they are world-class players. They play in the pro, uh, World, World Cup, so big credit to them and yeah, big credit to our girls too. And that was Solomon Islands women's coach, Batram Suri, speaking there to ABC's reporter in Apia, Adele Fruin. Don't worry, Solomon Islands, I was going for you. Tune in to SBS Samoa News on ABC Radio Australia. SBS Samoa News features independent news and stories connecting you to life in Australia and Samoan speaking Australians by our friends at SBS Australia. SBS Samoa News. Tune in Mondays and Thursdays at 6.05am Samoan time for one hour of news in the Samoan language on ABC Radio Australia. Welcome back to Pacific Beat. I'm your host, Aggie Dubol. Uh, here we're going to be talking about a new book that claims Australia's ambitions for global climate policy leadership have been seriously undermined in recent years and a renewed approach to the Pacific is needed to secure the region's interests. The book, published today by Melbourne University Publishing, is Climate Politics in Oceania, Renewing Australia-Pacific Relations in a Warming World. One of the editors of the book and a law professor at Griffith University, Susan Harris Rimmer joins me now. Then I say good morning, Susan. Good morning. Yeah, thank you very much for joining us this morning. Uh, when we dive into this, that book describes, again, Australian leadership being undermined by political inertia, policy blind spots, and even like diplomatic isolation. I mean, how has this actually influenced climate policy in the Pacific? Uh, basically, because Australia is a very important actor in Pacific politics in terms of uh, official development assistance, but more importantly, just as a neighbour um, and as a actor in the region in regional organisations. And the long, long, long inertia on climate policy has affected the entire region. So our argument here is that the Pacific have been uh, displaying exceptional leadership on climate policy have been, especially uh, in my chapter, I explain how they've tried to shape international law with a, a whole range of um, very innovative um, diplomatic uh, 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 initiatives, including the ICJ advisory opinion. And Australia just hasn't matched that. Sometimes it's blocked it, but most of the time it's just not participated. Um, and we're slowly seeing a change under the Albanese government, but our argument is it's, it's, it's got to accelerate if we're going to get back to where we need to be. Yes, Susan, because I think of Pacific leaders who are really recognising, you know, the, the influence of their regional voice. I think of even Samoa's Prime Minister, you know, Fiamme, Naomi Mata'afa, with even the chogum that's happening later on this year. I mean, uh, yeah, do you speak to that of, of the influence that these leaders are finally recognising how strong their voice is? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think, I mean, this this book is from an Australian perspective. It's basically... Um, uh, Australian academic leaders from all different disciplines uh, and then we've got the counter voice of you know very important Pacific academics speaking back to us you know um, so it's it's kind of uh, a bit of a a bit of a, a, a moaning sigh from <laughs> from Australian academics about because this is our own self-interest we're talking about here so we are um, 
we are very, uh, we're not uncritical of Pacific leadership in the book. You know, there are things that can be changed. There's some inconsistency sometimes, but it's just, it's mostly this is the right direction and we should be following it too because it's our own national interest to do so. It's our own survival to do so. Which would be sort of a wake-up call to Australia. And I'm, and I'm wondering, Susan, you know, what are some of the maybe major obstacles to, to even changing Australia's uh, strategic outlook? Well, it's basically thinking of itself uh, as one actor instead of a a primary actor in some of these areas to using its relationship with America to support climate issues to to trying to see the Pacific region as the blue pacific as the as the big big ocean uh, region and understanding its power both in terms of I guess uh, it's geopolitical location and its its stewardship of oceans, but also in terms of the worldview. So the kind of worldview that we need to deal with climate change is the same kind of worldview our own First Nations people have about thinking about our land and our country and about caring for country and just kind of allowing some of that worldview to come back more into our elite political um, and diplomatic uh, practices. And it's 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 not like other countries aren't doing this. Um, mm. You know, we can look to, there are some countries in Europe like Germany and others that are in Norway who are, you know, have changed from being big coal or, or completely dependent on mining or, you know, having that kind of um, uh, influence on its politics. I'm thinking of Wales, for example, and they have realised that their own self-interest lies in, transition and a fair transition it's just taken us such a long time to make and we still haven't right we just we're still opening coal mines we're still laggards um in international diplomacy on climate change so um we don't know whether australia and the pacific will host cop in a couple of years we're still waiting to hear about that as far as i know Mm. but that could be a real opportunity to to actually show a complete change in direction. And God knows we, we need one, right? Well, I suppose this book is very timely in the sense of it. But And, and the book itself suggests that a new set of diplomatic skills and tradecraft. Well, could you maybe go into more detail on that? Because is this part of the renewed approach? Well, that's right. It's not just what we do, it's the way we do it, right? So Australia has had a kind of a, you know, um, post-colonial approach to the Pacific and, you know, in reality in PNG, it is a post-colonial Australian state. It's It's been taken a long time, I think, for, for Australia to understand that population size is not the only marker of a state's power, you know. So I think for a long time it's kind of underestimated the complexity of the Pacific region. I think it's not necessarily... Uh, I guess, understood um, what it means to be acting in solidarity with the region as opposed to being a kind of a, um, you know, a little sheriff sort of figure. So it's it's really about changing our approach and the way we conduct ourselves too. So real listening, real acts of solidarity um, and, and, a, and a, that with that goes with the treatment of Pacific Islanders in Australia and the Pacifica population here. So there's got to be, you know, a full, a full neighbourly respect um, 
for the Pacific. And, you know, I can see there have been changes. The Office of the Pacific, I think, has changed the status of the islands, but it was for the wrong reasons, right? It was because China was more active in the region. It wasn't for the, the right motivations, I suppose. Um, and we, we talk about that a lot. We talk about the kind of the security culture of Australia and um, the way that the Australian Defence Force um, also acts in the region. And one of the things I think about, uh, or one of our um, authors talks about, is using every tool of tradecraft that we have, trade, immigration, defence diplomacy, um, aid, um, normal diplomacy, regionalism, to really start impacting that relationship properly. And at the core of all of that has got to be this commitment to a fair transition for, for climate impacts, which are affecting our all of us, uh, all of our regions, so dramatically now. Mm, thank you for sharing that. Uh, if you've just tuned in, I'm speaking to law professor at Griffith University, Susan Harris-Rimmer, who's also the editor of a book being published today by Melbourne University Publishing, Climate Politics in Oceania, Renewing Australia-Pacific Relations in a Warming World. I really would like to get my hands on this book. Um, there have been consistent efforts, though, uh, by Pacific leaders to challenge Australia, Susan, particularly on its fossil fuel emissions. Do you see these as having much of an impact? Well, I mean, our own citizens aren't having much of an impact, <laughs> um, and I think I think that's the real issue. It's it's that the politics of the transition inside Australia is seen as so difficult um, that any external influence doesn't seem to be cutting through either. So, on one hand, you have these expressions of real commitment to the security of the Pacific Islands who are saying very strongly that the existential threat to them is climate change and then they see Australia opening new coal mine after new coal mine and, you know, it, it must be absolutely uh, galling uh, as it is to Australians in Australia. So I think there's this disconnect between what we say we're committed to and what we're doing and the domestic politics of that have yet to really shift. Uh, it's partly to do with the way um, parties are influenced, political parties are influenced, and it's, it's a lot to do with the way politics have just been done for a really long time and trying to get that to shift. So we've seen the states be more active than the FIP and the Commonwealth on climate targets, and hopefully that will start to continue. So we might see some action at state level that will gradually, um, you know, uh, overcome the federal state. And it's not given given how difficult it was to even get reasonable climate targets. I understand why the national government at the moment is is taking things slowly, but we just we don't have time. I, th I think the People don't understand that this is not any other type of political issue. It is a, it's an issue of survival. It's an issue of, you know, Australia facing climate catastrophe summer after summer, cyclone season after cyclone season, bushfire season after bushfire season until this is sorted out. So I, I'm hoping the kind of the urgency and scale of the problem is more apparent to most Australian citizens after this summer. Um, but you know, it should have been more apparent. We've had our Torres Strait Islanders impacted by climate change in a, in a, you know, absolutely fundamental way, and they're Australian citizens, the, some of the first Australian citizens, and it doesn't seem to have impacted the national conversation the way it should.
Mm. Look, Susan, you sound like you've got it, but of course it's the awaiting on those who could really make the change. And you alluded to it a little bit, but without a, a detransition from fossil fuels, the big question would be how can Australia expect to have any credibility in the region? Yeah, absolutely. I, I can't see that there is any way out of it other than that. It's got to be that domestic change that people want to see, you know, um, the type of politics I think that works in our relations with the Pacific are, are poli- uh, is diplomacy based on real authenticity. Um, you know, it has to be authentic. It can't be saying one thing and doing another, and 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 that's what people are seeing. Uh, it's what it's what like young Australians see too. I think that's why they're so disillusioned. Um, you know, we we say one thing and and we do another. We have these targets, and yet we invest in the wrong things. And they don't want to be told that politics is difficult to change and incremental because it's their future at stake, not not the politicians that are currently in power now. So, you know, trying to change the conversation so that the rights of future generations have a real say, have a real bearing on the outcome of current day politics, that's another thing we're very interested in in this book. And I just want to ask, uh, Susan, being able to bring together, of course, Australian and our Pacific Island voices, perspective, what, is that the ultimate message from this book, though? Yeah, I, I think it's about sort of saying that actually um, we have the same agenda uh, and that it's not it's not saying um, academics have all the answers, but maybe we have a bit of a perspective, an aerial perspective that we can see. And certainly you can only produce a book like this by modelling those same values, by, you know, deeply listening to each other, respecting each other's viewpoints um, and genuinely working together, So, which is, which is what we tried to do in this book. So it's, it's really, it was really about sort of saying here is an agenda to follow in all these areas, trade, aid, defence, diplomacy, uh, international law. Here's, here's a range of things that we're inspired by um, and... Um, it's, it's definitely based on this worldview of the region and thinking about the Blue Pacific and the big oceans and thinking about stewardship and thinking about next generations and sort of saying this is the way policy would be developed, this is the way we would act in the world if we took these things seriously, this is what it would look like. So that's our, our challenge um, to and – and we're hoping that it is a book that will be read by um, our leaders, our diplomats, um, regional organizations in the UN that's that's what it's it's that's what it's for it's um, trying to influence the, the the next kinds of conversations especially if we do host the next cop so it's it's meant to be useful but um, it's also meant to be an example of what happens when regional um, actors from really different perspectives really listen to each other Mm, and we do hope that that is the outcome from this book. But uh, Susan, we really appreciate your time this morning. Thank you for giving us an insight into this uh, great book. You're welcome. 
No worries. That, of course, is law professor at Griffith University, Susan Harris-Rimmon, also one of the editors of that book. If you want to get it, it's called Climate Politics in Oceania, Renewing Australia-Pacific Relations in a Warming World. Appreciate your company, but that brings us to the end of Pacific Beat. It's time to take a look back at our main story today. In PNG, where police say up to 26 people have been killed in an ambush in the Highlands region. Our PNG correspondent Tim Swanson says the nation is grieving. Just such a tragic loss of life, ultimately, you know, such a, a large group of people. Um, it's really caused a very significant outpouring of grief from the community in, in Papua New Guinea. And that is our PNG correspondent, Tim Swanston. Uh, look, I'll be back at the same time tomorrow. That's 6am PNG time. But you can hear us again this afternoon at 5pm at PNG time. To find out any more of our stories, simply head to our ABC Facebook page or our website, abc.net.au. Uh, stay tuned because on ABC Radio Australia, you've got your news, which is next. Coming up after that, it is Nisha Daily. Uh, until next time, we appreciate your company. I'm Aggie Dubol and this is Pacific Beat.